ICMA University is pleased to present this online program entitled City Health Dashboard, Using Data to Guide Your Jurisdiction's COVID-19 Response. We are very pleased to welcome all of you to this presentation. I would like to draw everyone's attention to the links box located on the left of your screen. To download a PDF copy of the presentation slides, simply click on the link and a separate web browser window will open so that you can view, save, or print. The webinar evaluation link is also in this area. You must be logged into ICMA University to access the survey from here, but you can also find it on your dashboard after today's program by clicking on the program title. It is my pleasure to introduce today's presenters, Benjamin Spohr and Emily Hunt Hinojosa. Benjamin Spohr manages the data team at the City Health Dashboard and leads the development of COVID Local Risk Index. Dr. Spohr received his MPH from Columbia University and PhD from NYU's College of Global Public Health. He is a spatial epidemiologist who uses geospatial methods and data to explore core public health and social justice issues, health equity, racial, ethnic health disparities, and others through an explicitly spatial lens. When not mulling maps, Dr. Spohr tries to cultivate an emotional relationship with his three extremely reluctant cats. Emily Hunt Hinojosa is the Director of Research and Community Impact for Prosper Waco, a collective impact initiative focused on addressing issues facing the greater Waco community in the areas of education, health, and financial security. Dr. Hunt Hinojosa holds a PhD in sociology from Baylor University, specializing in community analytics, as well as MA in sociology from Baylor University and a MA in higher education and student development from Taylor University. Speakers, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, everyone. I, um, I totally forgot about that deeply dorky line about the cats, and boy, does it sound ridiculous. Um, my name is Ben Spohr, and as you heard, I manage the data team for the City Health Dashboard. And in, uh, in recent, uh, last month, actually, we developed the COVID Local Risk Index as a, as a sort of response to a, a deeply felt need amongst our city uh, partners for uh, a way to sort of wrap their arms around uh, how to respond to COVID, how to target resources, how to prepare for the outbreak of the disease that has been progressing across the country. And uh, I'm uh, so I'm here to talk to you today about the about the index to uh, help you sort of get a, a, a sort of a deep appreciation or understanding of how we came up with it, what goes into it. Uh, uh, how to use the COVID Local Risk Index. We're going to talk about some trends across cities and states, and uh, 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 including differences in risk level within cities. And it's it's sort of great that I I can provide a real substantial amount of information for you, and I hope that it's useful. And for me, the most exciting, uh, potentially one of the most exciting parts about this is hearing from Emily from, from Prosser Waco, uh, you know, 
Waco and Prosper Waco specifically have really been on the forefront of using the dashboard and using these data. And I'm just excited to hear more uh, from you, Emily, about your perspective on this, because I always learn so much from our conversations. So the first step we're going to take here is, like, what is the dashboard and, and how does one use it? And uh, so, so the goal of the city health dashboard is to help cities across the U.S. leverage the power of data to improve the health and well-being of everyone in their community. And uh, there's, a, there's an old adage in the, in the public health world, it's probably not limited to the public health world, but in the public health world, that what gets measured gets done. And, and what we mean there is if we are not producing data related to an issue, then there is no way for us to get funding, design programs, design interventions around that issue. And I, I, I've heard it frequently from our city partners that the standard for the data they include in their funding applications or their uh, accreditation applications and even in how they approach any problem has continued to rise to the point that without accurate granular uh, data, it's difficult to to uh, push forward the important public health agendas that they all desire to push forward. And one way in which we think about the dashboard is that we, you know, we're academics in New York City uh, playing with spreadsheets all day. And no one has ever really treated a health problem with a spreadsheet. It's, it's rare that you show up to an emergency room with a broken leg and someone you know, wraps an Excel sheet around it. What we really hope to do is to provide the, the uh, numbers that back up what community members and community leaders already know. A lot of uh, our city partners already know which neighborhoods uh, uh, deserve uh, additional resources or where uh, in a city there's insufficient access to healthy foods or it's harder to walk around. Uh, uh, and we can provide the numbers to back up the on-the-ground expertly situated knowledge. Uh, and, and with those numbers, communities are able to obtain funding, design interventions, and really sort of uh, take off into an, another level of public health uh, uh, approaches. And so we see ourselves less as an end but and more as a means to an end for city leaders. And the challenge here for a lot of these places is uh, obtaining the data. Uh, U.S. cities are responsible for a lot of programs that have substantial impact on public health, either uh, uh, directly uh, or indirectly. Thinking about safe and affordable housing, uh, housing is a public health issue. Where people can and can't smoke or the price of a pack of cigarettes is a public health issue. Access to healthy foods and walkability have been gaining a lot of traction uh, especially in the past few years, uh, as public health issues that used to be primarily business or zoning or or public or um, city planning issues, 
And as these issues move closer under the umbrella of public health, the way that we think about them and the way we address them continues to evolve. And one of the biggest problems that our partners face is problems of geography in that uh, up until recently, much of these data were not available parsed to city and neighborhood boundaries. Taking the example of Gary, Indiana, if you are a city leader in Gary, Indiana, it's difficult for you to use data that uh, are, are parsed to the, for instance, Lake County boundaries. Gary covers a small area of Lake County, and Lake County covers a small area of Indiana as a whole. And while geography and geographic territory is interesting and important, it's also important for us to, for us at the dashboard to remember that the populations that live in these places are different. Uh, cities tend to have more diverse populations uh, and diverse in terms of racial, ethnic uh, composition, in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of educational attainment, and uh, in terms of health behaviors and health outcomes. And so oftentimes the county data don't provide a, a totally reasonable proxy for what's going on in cities. Given that, many cities just don't have the data they need to, to sort of back up their expertise on what's going on in their, uh, in their cities and neighborhoods. And many of these data only exist at the county level. So without more accurate data, many of these cities are making decisions in the dark. And so enters the city health dashboard. And uh, to, to reference the previous slide, uh, sorry, this third slide, you know, we're really trying to find ways to provide the data required to, to uh, be part of the rising tide that lifts all boats in these cities. And so uh, we have over 35 measures of health, the factors that shape health, and drivers of health equity in 750 cities in the U.S. And uh, one thing that I like about this map is you can really tell the, the population centers in the U.S. are concentrated in northern Southern California, uh, Texas, Florida, and parts of the Northeast. And uh, it, also in, it also more importantly demonstrates that we have num a number of cities across the country. And, you know, we are conscious that we're, we're making a, we're using data to make comparisons between places that are very different. And again, that's why we always are uh, keeping in mind that we're a way to empower local leaders. We are, these data are a, a means to an end. So, uh, the, the underlying sort of theory of change here is that data uh, enables change. And our, uh, our idea here is that without these data, it is difficult to, for a place to get their hands around or their lines around what is, uh, how their expertise can translate into public health interventions. Our, our metrics are divided into five major categories clinical care, health behaviors, the physical environment, health outcomes, and social and economic factors. Uh, our clinical care uh, data primarily are drawn from uh, 
large public health surveillance systems, uh, including the National Vital Statistics System and the 500 Cities data set, which uh, are, uh, is uh, sort of informed by the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. And some examples include access to preventative services and prenatal care. Our clinical, our health behaviors include uh, teen births, smoking, binge drinking, physical inactivity, some others. And again, many of these are from National Vital Statistics System or um, uh, physical, in, uh, sorry, the 500 cities data set. Our physical environment data is some of the uh, more frequently discussed among our data sets. We have park access, walkability, and uh, we also have limited access to healthy foods. Uh, uh, all of these at the neighborhood level, I believe. Yeah, neighborhood level. And this is sort of a, a relatively new way to think about drivers of public health in that uh, uh, we have been talking about social determinants of health for uh, a while now, though it's still uh, relatively new. And these physical drivers, uh, physical environment drivers, have emerged in the scene, uh, especially limited access to healthy foods, as a new way to look at uh, uh, how uh, cities can, can help improve population health. Um, our health outcomes uh, include uh, uh, overwhelming majority uh, of these outcomes come from the National Biostatistics System in 500 cities. Some of the highlights here, uh, opioid overdose death, frequent mental and physical distress, the life expectancy measure from USA LEAP, uh, which is sort of an excellent totalizing measure of public health outcomes, and then, of course, our recently added COVID local risk index. And then our social and economic factors are primarily drawn from the U.S. Census and include some of the sort of foundational uh, social determinants of health, poverty, uh, high school graduation, income inequality, employment. Um, one I'd like to highlight here is excessive housing cost. This one is relative to not only uh, what the income is like in a given place, but also uh, what the rent costs are in a given place because it's percentage of individuals paying more than 30% of their income uh, towards rent in a, in a um, in a given location. And uh, while there are different definitions of excessive, we use that one. And it sort of, uh, it, it's a it's an interesting uh, economic measure. And this is our, uh, our, the full list of our metrics. And you can see that the ones typed out in blue are available at the city level only and the ones in gold uh, are available at the neighborhood or census tract level. And uh, some of these, for instance, breast cancer deaths and cardiovascular disease death rate are available at the city level because we want to preserve uh, individual privacy by not disaggregating data to a point where there are few events. And for these specific causes of death, there are few events at the neighborhood level. Some others of these uh, are at the city level because the data are not released at a lower geography level, thinking about specifically uh, violent crime or uh, primary care physician count. 
and we are we are sort of always striving to provide our users with more granular data that are available at the neighborhood level and that's one of the uh, one of the features the, of the COVID local risk index that we think is most important is that we can look at within city neighborhood level variation. So um, at this point, I'm going to provide you a a, a real time demo of the dashboard to sort of walk you through what someone might uh, see when they're looking at the dashboard. And if uh, in the next few moments, any of you can type in a large US city into the, into the chat box, I'll be able to use that city as our case example. And I, uh, I'm gonna give us maybe one minute to type one in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got Tampa and Tempe, so we're hitting the T's. Thank you, Sam uh, Clark in Waddale Homes. I think that's Waddale. Thank you so much. And I've got a lot of other examples here. We'll try to flip around to different geographies a little bit if possible. Okay, I am going to skirt my screen. So what you should see in front of you is um, the, the uh, landing page for the city health dashboard. And uh, one, the first thing I wanna draw your attention to is that you can navigate to a lot of different parts of the website through this, what our developer keeps calling a hamburger menu, which is not at all a, a hunger cue for us when we're in web development meetings. And I, I wanna underscore right now that the uh, overwhelming majority of our data are publicly accessible through our data access page. You can click here. We do ask just a few questions so that we can reach out to folks when our data change or are updated. And uh, then you can get a state level or national level file with all of the data we're capable of releasing. Our COVID local risk index is not currently included in our downloadable data, but we are happy to field requests for that via email. And you can reach out to me or find the contact info uh, on our website to get that. So um, now that I've talked for a few moments, the city name I remember is Tampa, and so we're going to Tampa, Florida. Uh, and what I want to highlight here is that all of our 756 cities are available via this drop-down menu from uh, New York City, uh, which is, I believe, our biggest city to some of uh, a, a handful of smaller New Jersey cities that we added through a collaboration with the New Jersey Health Initiative, for instance, Egg Harbor City. The uh, population range for cities on the dashboard is currently uh, 2,000 to 8 million, and some of those smaller New Jersey cities round out that bottom group. So let's go to Tampa, Florida. The next choice you're presented is to select a metric. And uh, we're going to take a deep dive into COVID local risk index a little bit later uh, in this conversation. So I'm going to start with uh, life expectancy, which uh, is one of our other most uh, frequently selected and popular metrics. So if you click through the life expectancy, 
you the first thing you see here is in the scale bar. And what the scale bar shows you is life expectancy in Tampa with at the city level with this gold bar as compared to the national average. And we can already see that Tampa is uh, lagging just a little bit in life expectancy at about a uh, 1.6 years lower than the dashboard average. As we scroll down, we see a, uh, a map, a census tract level map of life expectancy in Tampa. And we can zoom in with the plus and minus keys here. And as you can tell from this scale bar, darker colors usually, uh, sorry, darker colors mean less desirable values. And as we hover over some of these darker uh, colored census tracts, we can find, we'll find that life expectancy is lower in some of these places on the lower end of the spectrum at 64 years here, 68 years here. But right next door to this track in which the life expectancy is 68, life expectancy here is 76 years, is uh, eight years longer. And this is one of the big strengths of the dashboard is that we can sort of visualize differences in health outcomes uh, very quickly and get a sort of a visceral level knowledge or understanding of how some uh, health determinants might translate into health outcomes. So I think what I'm seeing here is that Tampa's highest life expectancy is 87.3, and uh, this scale bar suggests that's close. I don't know that we'll spend a lot of time looking for a higher one, but you know we're not we're not but a few miles apart here. I believe I don't know Tampa very well, and I apologize to the person who suggested this. I've not spent any time in Tampa yet, uh, but. We've got 64 years here and 87 years here, and that right there is sort of an attention-grabbing headline for any uh, uh, grant application. So I'm going to change metrics. We change metrics to, uh, for instance, I'm going to choose one of our uh, uh, census-derived metrics because then we can get a demographic detail on it. We'll see that. Uh, this area in which there is high life expectancy, there's also relatively low children in poverty. And we've got some higher values in a couple of these places where there was a lower life expectancy. If we click through, and you'll notice that these arrows sort of suggest a user journey. If we click through to demographic detail, we'll find that there are substantial differences, I'd even say disparities in the percentage of children living in poverty across racial ethnic uh, strata. And uh, the percentage white, uh, percentage of Asian and white uh, children living in poverty is lower than the than average. And the percentage of black and Hispanic is higher. And uh, in a couple places across the dashboard, you'll find these sense-making statements. The percent of children in poverty among Tampa's Asian population is lower than the average percent of children in poverty for the Asian population across the dashboard cities. So we know that these are big, uh, complicated sentences, and we hope to write them out clearly enough that even folks who don't spend all their time uh, thinking through data systems uh, uh, can find these data useful. Now, uh, we're going to click through to the Compare Cities tool. 
And what this allows us to do is find cities that are broadly speaking similar to, sorry, I'm jumping around a lot, so it's, I, 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 uh, it's the nervous scrolling, uh, that are similar to Tampa in a number of important ways. And I think that from my standpoint, the most useful part of this tool is the filter to find or compare cities because someone in Tampa might say, you know, people always compare us to uh, St. Petersburg or Miami. And you know what? We're not sure that that comparison really makes sense. If you click through to find comparison cities, you can find a couple of major categories, uh, uh, demographic categories to compare your uh, city to other cities, to find cities that are similar in important ways, similar in terms of population, location, uh, or racial ethnic breakdown. You can also find cities that are similar to your city in terms of uh, numerous, pretty much all of the dashboard metrics here. So uh, the we're going to be adding soon to this section of the dashboard the ability to filter by city types. And we've created a, a pretty interesting way to look at city typologies and how those city typologies affect uh, health outcomes. And this is sort of a, a coming soon. If, if you are getting excited about the data we provide here, we're going to release that uh, report and those metrics in the near future. So. Uh, we're going to move through here to compare metrics. And uh, let's say that we want, you know, I'm going to change city because I think we spent enough time in Tampa. I saw San Sorry, Tempe. I'm going to go to San Jose because I'm from Northern California. And I, I'm the presenter. I can play favorites. So we're in San Jose. We can see that uh, poverty in San Jose, children in poverty in San Jose is a little bit, uh, is about half that of the national average, of the dashboard city average, sorry, the average of cities on the dashboard. And it's important that I highlight for many of our metrics, you can go back in time and see that uh, percent children in poverty in San Jose has changed over time. It's actually uh, lower in 2018 than it was in 2013. Now let's say that we wanted to compare a metric here. And we know that, uh, generally speaking, children poverty is related to obesity. So we're going to add obesity here. And I'm just going to update this year metric year to 2017 so we have the same metric year. And these two scale bars here sort of give you the information you need to inter excuse me, interpret the ensuing map which is that darker colors mean higher poverty for children in poverty, and darker circles, darker dots, mean higher obesity. And so what we're going to expect to see generally is that darker polygons will correspond with darker dots. And if we zoom in a little bit, sorry for anyone who gets a little motion sickness <laughs> on this one, it's an interrupt zoom, we can see that relationship sort of playing out a little bit. Uh, we'll just click on this one. So we'll hover over this one. We have 0.8% children in poverty, which is very low, and comparatively speaking, low obesity at 12.9% here in this uh, northwest corner of San Jose. And then in this more central portion, we have 35% children in poverty and almost 30%, and it's our 29.2% uh, obese. So 
in some of these places will not uh, some of these census tracts will not have uh, as uh, clear a relationship but if we scroll down a little bit we'll get a scatter plot and for those of you who remember drawing regression lines or correlation lines through data you can sort of generally see uh, a positive correlation here and that's what we would expect based on what we know about the relationship between uh, poverty and uh, obesity. So the final feature I want to show you here is the take action section. The take action section is we're going to change metrics to obesity here. The change action take action section uh, helps users find uh, resources and uh, uh, on how to uh, uh, address a given health issue. And so I think my having a little bit of trouble loading the obesity resources, but we'll change back to life expectancy, which I know should produce. And then if we click through the policies and programs, you'll find, for instance, a list of uh, uh, policies and programs that have been proven effective for uh, addressing life expectancy at the city and neighborhood level. You can also find partnerships, explore strategies, find funding, which may be one of the more important, uh, uh, one of the more important features here in measure impact. So I'm going to uh, stop the tour here uh, and bring us back to our slides. Um, I'm so glad that I chose Tampa because I've seen like four folks that asked for it. So I lucked into the <laughs> to the right uh, city here. Um, I'm going to take just a moment here before we dive into the next section. And um, if it doesn't, uh, and and answer two of the questions that I have here. Uh, because I think it's really important for us to get a strong foundation for these data and to demonstrate uh, uh, or at least answer questions about where they come from before I ask you to uh, believe what we have to say about COVID. So um, if you have any questions, please type them in. We we'll take a few here. Um, so a question from uh, Freddie. Coupon or Cuppin Ames. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, Freddie. How can cities assure the public of new data and measurements regarding COVID when there have been some changes uh, to when the data goes and how it is being disseminated, i.e. hospital data used to go to CDC? Freddie, this is such a smart question. And we have spent a lot of time recently, we'll continue spending a lot of time thinking about how COVID affects data systems. Uh, COVID data, specifically case rates, positive case tests, uh, has become a political entity. And uh, it's difficult to get comprehensive data about where COVID is happening and in what quantity. And so uh, uh, we, we are validating, I'll show you, we're going to talk a bit about validation of the COVID index. Um, in a little bit. And so I'll save, save some of that for uh, the next series of slides. But only to say that uh, the end of that slide, end of that argument is 
we believe that more of these data should be made publicly available at a granular level, at the census tract level, so that it is uh, uh, so that we can further pursue validating the the work that we're about. I'm about to describe to you. Uh, and then David Schulke, I hope I'm getting that right, David. Uh, when you say neighborhood level, quote unquote, are you using nine digit zip codes like the Area Deprivation Index codes? or some other way of identifying neighborhoods? David, uh, great question. Um, our team has reported uh, dreaming of uh, different neighborhood geographies instead of sugar plums during the holiday season. Uh, we use census tracts. And for those of you who uh, don't have dreams about census tracts, uh, <laughs> a census tract is a, a, a uh, is a ge geographic unit, boundaries are drawn by the census. It has between uh, 1,500 and 8,000 residents, usually around 4,000. And uh, it's, it's used for statistical comparisons across census years. And it also happens to be roughly the size of many neighborhoods, or at least as close as many researchers can get in administrative data. And so um, while census tracts, for many reasons, don't always perfectly align with how people uh, understand their neighborhoods, especially in places with high population density, um, the, the uh, it's sort of the the most frequently used and closest uh, analog to neighborhood level data we can get, and sometimes uh, the the area the census tracts give us even more grand, geographically granular data. Um, so, and I think I'm going to move on here and uh, see. I see a question about how data collected and are we able to download data from the dashboard. I'm actually just going to screen share for one more moment uh, about the data question, and then we're going to move forward. Uh, Freddie, you said, can we get these data, and we would love nothing more than, to, than for you to grab our data and use it. If you go from any part of the dashboard to this hamburger menu, click on data access. We're going to ask you for a little bit of information, and we, we use this to reach out when the data are updated so that you might use the most accurate and updated information. But if you fill out the survey, you'll be able to access uh, uh, downloadable CSVs that have uh, all of our metrics with some key exceptions uh, at the city and census tract level. And you can get them for the whole country, or you can get them just for a specific state. And we don't provide the COVID data on these downloadable data, but you can get them by emailing us directly. Uh, and then Sam, part, the, how are the data collected, what are the sources? We have a number of different sources, um, ranging from one-on-one -on -one data agreements with uh, private companies to using publicly available data from the census or from the 500 Cities Project. There's a lot more information about that uh, on our tech doc, uh, uh, which you can download uh, at the bottom of our homepage or the bottom of any page on the dashboard. And um, I'm happy to answer more specific questions because uh, you know I I think that if I tried to tell you the data source through 35 measure I would, measures I could kick off my own webinar because it'd be too much information. Okay, back to our slides. 
So the COVID Local Risk Index, what is it, how did we create it, and how can you use it? Uh, state and city, so we heard from our partners that folks really needed uh, a granular data, really needed granular like neighborhood level data to guide COVID preparation and response. And in looking through the existing data tools at the time, we we found a space that the, a way that the dashboard could could create an index that would be really helpful. While other data tools existed, many of them uh, did not use exclusively neighborhood level data, uh, they, which we think is essential to understanding what's going on within a city and within a neighborhood. Uh, there was some focus on access to healthcare services, which is an important uh, contributor to what's going on in the COVID pandemic, and we thought um, was was a different angle than we wanted to take on it. And many of them did not incorporate uh, clinical factors related to the severity of uh, COVID outcomes. And so the purpose of our COVID local risk index is to provide city and state stakeholders granular information about city and neighborhood level risk. And the, the idea here is that we want to help cities and states uh, allocate resources to the communities and to the cities within states at the greatest risk for COVID uh, infections, a high risk uh, of spread, and for severe COVID outcomes. And I want to be uh, really clear here that uh, we don't think this is useful for predicting case counts or mortality. There are a lot of stuff going on out in the world right now that is related to case count and mortality that we cannot uh, measure or do not measure in the index. Um, thinking about uh, case risk of infection specifically, uh, variation in access to testing, uh, variation in in travel patterns and local super spreader events are not included in the index and can have a big impact on case rates. And health systems and health care access can affect mortality substantially and, and granular neighborhood level data are not available for these factors. And so we could not include them in the index. So here's where we're going to get really technical and if you're not, um, if you don't really enjoy nitty gritty data stuff, this is a great point to um, maybe think about your trip to the grocery store or uh, imagine what it was like if I wasn't about to show you a massive overwhelming table because I'm going to do that. I'm sorry. Um, the, <laughs> the index is comprised of three primary groups of variables. The first is the CDC's Social Vulnerability Index, and I really want to highlight the, the SVI, the Social Vulnerability Index, because it is publicly available for download and it includes every census tract in the U.S. And we are not able to cover every census tract in the U.S. with our data and the SVI does. And, and it captures some important information about potential COVID, risk of COVID transmission and it has a little bit better coverage. And the SVI is a combination of demographic and economic variables that are drawn from the U.S. Census and is meant to, it was intended to and originally capture track levels susceptibility to natural disasters. And there is a, a non-trivial way of thinking about COVID as a natural disaster. Not quite perfect, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in the ballpark, perhaps. And uh, the SBI has been independently 
uh, validated, uh, statistically significantly correlated against case rate data and is using some other data tools. And so, so there's sort of building a body of evidence that SVI is a useful way to think about risk of COVID transmission. On top of the SVI, we added clinical health conditions that are related to severe COVID outcomes. And uh, I want to acknowledge right here that our understanding of COVID is and COVID outcomes is evolving rapidly. The the uh, literature base changes frequently, and in the early days of this, uh, uh, in especially the I would say six weeks before we created uh, the COVID index. There was some debate about which clinical factors might uh, primarily drive uh, severe COVID outcomes. And while we're always refining, we're still learning, and that debate is not by any means over, what we have found since we've released the COVID index is a lot of the emerging literature sort of builds upon the factors that we include here and, and uh, provides further evidence of their importance. And I'm going to have a list of the specific uh, uh, health conditions in the next slide. And then group three, we have two uh, demographic factors that merit additional uh, weight or emphasis. And that's uh, the age distribution and percent mortality. And we weighted these variables according to evidence uh, uh, based on sort of our understanding of the literature available at the time. And I'll talk a little bit more about our upcoming review of the index uh, later on. And now I'm just going to take a deep breath because I'm about to show you a huge data table. Here we go. Here's the huge data table. What we have here are the three themes I've just described to you under the theme column. Our data source, uh, for those of you who want to go take a look at it yourself. Uh, how we decided, uh, the weighting we assigned to each of the uh, uh, categories, and then the specific components of uh, each of these three themes. So we, for instance, weighted the social vulnerability index at 45%. And we also weighted the health COVID-related conditions at 45% because we, we didn't have uh, uh, substantial body of evidence that suggested which of these weight more heavily when thinking about the total impact of COVID at the neighborhood or city level. And in the face of that equipoise, we wanted to equally emphasize the risk of transmission, which we believe is risk of infection, sorry, which we believe is captured by the social vulnerability index, and the risk of severe outcomes, which we believe is captured by the chronic health outcomes. We distributed this 45% weight over the variables included in the social vulnerability index, which breaks down to about 3% per component. And a couple of variables I want to highlight in the SVI, in the social vulnerability index. We have uh, persons age 65 plus, and we have percent minority, which are uh, similar to the uh, demographic factors that we believe deserve extra emphasis. And uh, what I think is perhaps most important in the SVI, among many important variables, is the uh, is the variable in bold towards the bottom of the SVI list in group four. At the household level, are what percentage of households have more 
people, more residents than rooms, and this is an overcrowding measure. And we know there's mounting evidence that um, uh, that transmission indoors is important. Uh, and the more people that are living in a different in a given place, uh, the more likelihood of transmission if one of those people is infected. And so uh, that one stood out as an important component of SVI. He, below that, you'll see the list of chronic conditions uh, uh, that we included, and you'll see that we did not uh, uniformly distribute the weight. Uh, the 45% weight amongst these chronic conditions. We uh, weighted uh, some more highly based on the existing evidence and what the uh, existing evidence suggests uh, uh, would be more impactful for severe COVID outcomes. And then uh, finally, we have added some emphasis to percent minority and then uh, added uh, more evidence, uh, sorry, emphasis to older age groups because there's, uh, again, mounting evidence that uh, older individuals uh, uh, have more severe outcomes and uh, that the severity of the outcomes increase as individuals age. And um, I'm just going to divert for a moment, Ronald. Uh, for group three, it says age and percent minority, but I said age and mortality rate, which is correct. Thank you, Ronald. Uh, mortality rates are not included in the current version of the index. We could not get those data, and those are sort of the outcome of higher risk. So I don't know that we would include it if we had them. So I should not have said mortality. I should have said uh, age and percent minority. Okay. so. Let's uh, get off of this table. Um, so what do we believe the index should be used for? We think it should be used to guide resource allocation. It could be used to direct testing and outreach efforts, uh, identify neighborhoods that have more or fewer than expected cases. That one's taken directly from Emily. High five, Emily. Thank you so much. And um, we also see a strong potential for cities uh, and states and neighborhood organizations to advocate for more resources uh, if they are in a high-risk group or if they, uh, sorry, if they have a high-risk score or just for any reason at all. I think that uh, we all have good reasons to want to advocate for more COVID-related resources. It's also important to highlight what we should not be using this for, and and I alluded, I spoke about this a little bit earlier, but to reiterate. This is not meant to be a predictive tool because there's a lot going on that we can't capture using the index. And uh, and so we don't expect uh, cases and um, uh, mortality or hospitalizations to track perfectly, but we do expect them to be correlated. Uh, and so it should not be used to predict in a specific sense either case counts or deaths. And given that we don't think it should be used to predict case counts or deaths, we also don't think that you can eval necessarily evaluate specific prevention efforts using the COVID local risk index. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to say uh, this place has a high COVID local risk index score, but um, uh, low cases, and so it must mean that whatever we did here helped. 
uh, we being, for instance, the, uh, uh, some public health intervention. I do think that it makes sense to make the sort of comparisons that, uh, that Prosper Waco has made, and the, Emily's going to describe those in just a moment, but I don't think this is a good evaluation tool. So, um, so does it work? <laughs> so the ultimate question with a tool like this is, uh, are the data valid? And uh, uh, is, the co is the COVID local risk index track sort of with, with what we know about transmission or severity of outcomes? And um, this is a little bit difficult to answer. And the reason, one of the many reasons it's difficult to answer is that, as I said previously, the COVID data have become a political entity. We have only been able to find uh, granular COVID-related data for two states, for Louisiana and Wisconsin. And uh, that's a limited, those are, you know, those are not, for instance, Texas and California, where we have an overwhelmingly large number of cities, or Florida. And so we're only able to validate the COVID index against a few cities. And I will say that what we have seen so far is encouraging. Uh, the index is uh, statistically significantly correlated with positive case counts, confirmed cases at the census tract level in these places. It's a correlation is moderately strong. And uh, we're performing similarly to other publicly available uh, COVID data tools. What we think is uh, more encouraging is that our conversations with cities, uh, in our conversation with cities, cities have said, you know, this tracks, this, uh, these data, this map, or whatever we're looking at sort of fits with what we expect to see based on our internal data and our internal testing. And so, um, how do, how would you think about this? We think about this as it's early days. There's a lot to learn. Many of the data we need are inaccessible, and the early indications are are positive, are that we're capturing important information about COVID, risk of COVID transmission and severity of COVID outcomes. We've also seen substantial uptake in local press. If you are a Charleston resident, you can find uh, by Googling W. CSC Live 5 Charleston City Health Dashboard, a really uh, interesting and well thought out uh, local news clip about what's going, uh, about how uh, the local Department of Health has been using, uh, and uh, some communitarizations have been using the COVID local risk index. We also have a number of news clips. One of them is in Manchester City. Manchester City uh, officials took a look at the COVID local risk index on the dashboard, identified neighborhoods in which there is high risk scores, and encouraged folks in those neighborhoods to go get tested for COVID. And this is sort of our ideal use case. It's saying that, hey, there's, there are some reasons to believe that risk is higher here, so we should concentrate resources here. Uh, we also, after the story went out, uh, our site traffic doubled. Uh, which means there, and, and we believe a lot of it was from Manchester and people taking a look to see if they were in these neighborhoods so they could go get tested if necessary. We also um, seem to have been written up by uh, 
most of the cities uh, in Arkansas that are also on the dashboard. Uh, we got news clips from Jonesboro, uh, from Fort Smith, and uh, another another one written in Jonesboro, but I think talking about a different. No, also about Jonesboro. So um, we have um, engaged in some conversations with folks in Arkansas, and and when we asked them, you know, does this track for you, what they said is that in Little Rock, uh, the interstate I-630 was sort of uh, planted in the middle of Little Rock, and it was uh, constructed in such a way that it ran through minority uh, neighborhoods, primary black neighborhoods, and the the interstate became sort of a, a, a dividing line, a red line, if you will, and that as expected, they're seeing different case counts on different sides of I-630. And so, um, so, so while this tracks, or this is what we expect, is not sort of the big data validation that my, my deepest heart needs, it is telling us that local uh, city users are finding our uh, tool useful and it's giving them information they need and they find actionable. And uh, with that, I'm going to um, give you another voice to listen to for a moment. Uh, Emily, I, I, I hope that I haven't I lulled you to sleep with my narration. Uh, I think this is the moment in which I want to pass it over to you for you to give us an idea of how you at Prosper Waco have uh, been able to use the index. Great, thank you, Ben. Um, happy to be here and, and share what we've done in Waco. Um, so Prosper Waco is a collective impact initiative. We are not um, kind of formally part of the city management, though relate very closely to uh, health leaders, city leaders, um, uh, superintendents, um, leaders across our community. And so um, you know, everyone, including everyone on this call, I'm sure has felt the, the need for quick, meaningful data um, to figure out what to do. I mean, that's really the quest behind all data um, is trying to um, do more than a shot in the dark. And I think that uh, the COVID local risk index is much more than a shot in the dark, um, though I would say, as Ben mentioned, um, it's an experimental data product, just as, uh, you know, there are a number of these data products popping up everywhere trying to give all of us a sense of um, what's going on and what to do. And so we have been a part, um, in Waco, we've been a part of using the City Health Dashboard before this index. So we were one of the pilot cities and have been familiar with the data in the dashboard. And um, so Ben, your presentation before was just kind of reminded me of all the great features um, and just the accessibility. And so I think there's two things worth mentioning. One is that, um, you know, the, the importance of that, of looking at the granular geography is really, the question behind that is, um, you know, not, not just what's happening in my community, but for whom are things better or worse and, and where. And so I think, especially with COVID, um, that has really become more of a pressing issue as we're all trying to think about where to target resources. And so what we did in Waco, um, just a quick background, and, and I hopefully we'll have time to answer some questions, because um, this is an ongoing thing. We have used this risk index to really, um, I would say, look 
use it as a window into our community, um, not as a predictive endeavor, but really to as a starting point for conversations um, and a starting point for uh, formal and informal hypotheses. So um, our city, according to this kind of ranking mechanism, scored a, ten, a 9 um, in our city, which is high for risk, um, according to this index. And then we identified um, 16 communities, uh, neighborhoods, census tracts um, within Waco, the city of Waco, that um, either scored a 9 or a 10. Five that scored a 10 and 11 that scored a 9. And so, um, again, this index, I don't know if it can tell us everything, but it can tell us something. And so as we're thinking about where risk is concentrated, um, that was a starting point for us. I mean, I think we, you know, intuitively thought about different demographic issues or um, access to medical care, things like that that the, that the dashboard provides us prior to this index, but having it in one spot um, was really helpful. So we identified those, uh, those, those neighborhoods and then started just to kind of use it as a trailhead. So um, of the five highest, uh, of the five neighborhoods at the highest risk that scored a 10, uh, what do we know about those places? So. Um, our testing data at the moment is um, we do not have it at the census tract level. We have it at the zip code level, but are working to get that data um, from our public health partners to see if, um, you know, if you score a high risk, if you have a high risk score, but then you have a uh, low uh, case count, um, does that imply testing or is that, are there, um, the question that I had was, you know, are there, other factors going on in this particular community that could be, um, you know, mitigating risk. I think there's two ways of viewing the situation, and so we've used this tool to to reach out to community organizers in Waco and kind of ask those questions. And one of our community organizer friends, I, I posed this about one of our neighbors. I say, look, this is we've got a 10 in this one census tract, uh, but the case count seems to be quite low. What what do you think is going on? And so. Uh, you know, if we can rule out the testing issue, that there's adequate testing, or at least comparatively adequate testing, then um, then it becomes a question of what are the protective factors. So, uh, you know, they pointed out to me, well, the first uh, death in our community was a, a principal in that uh, particular neighborhood. So despite being high risk, there are many reasons that um, residents are taking it taking uh, COVID quite seriously in that particular community. So I think um, that's one way that we've used this. I think another is um, we've kind of, obviously data does not always come, uh, you know, coming by census tract, is, it does not come in the jurisdictions um, that, that maybe are most helpful. And so we've done a mapping project, mapping out uh, risk across city council districts to identify which um, districts are kind of most which parts of a district are most at risk. Um, and then we've also looked at some other data. Um, you can go to the next slide, Ben, I think. Um, we've looked at other measures uh, at the census tract level to see uh, what might be driving that risk. So Ben mentioned a few other um, indicators. We've used the, the Sergo Foundation's index um, to see you know, is it demographic issues? Is it health issues? Um, what might be driving the vulnerability? And I think uh, the reason that I love um, 
you know, I, I appreciate all these questions about about method and validity because I asked them, you know, before I downloaded this data and kind of dug in, I said, okay, how, how do we validate this? You know, how do we know this is the right thing um, to measure to measure COVID risk? And um, what I do appreciate about this index is that it is it is using uh, data at the census tract level, not at the county level or um, the state level. And I think for our community, you know, we, we are not a big city by any stretch of the imagination. This granularity becomes even more important um, as we're thinking about targeting our efforts. So we, um, I would say, at the very uh, you know worst case scenario, this has been a way of starting conversations in our community about who's at risk. And, and then um, thinking about why that might be the case. And some of that has been um, quantitatively oriented, right? We're looking at, um, you know, what number of essential workers are concentrated in this particular uh, high-risk area? Um, what, uh, what is the access to testing in this particular neighborhood? What clinics are available? What um, what other factors could be driving this? So that is kind of a nutshell of how we've used this in Waco. I'm happy to answer any questions. Again, this is ongoing. We are in the midst of, of, of rising cases and rising um, challenges in our community. And so we're still kind of drawing on this index to help us think through um, what to do. Uh, Emily, I really appreciate it, and I thank you for uh, also naming the Sergo Index. We um, thought a lot about the Sergo Index I, I, and, and learned from them. Um, also, I realized I did a very da bad data person thing and didn't tell folks the following. The COVID Local Risk Index ranges from 1 to 10. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never <laughs> said that. We did not have a good score. I mean, that was one of the, the things is that, you know, our whole city scored a nine, which was a challenge. But then um, to know that there are certain places that are kind of driving that number up. And again, I would say, like Ben said, it really tracks with, with what we know of our community. Um, and one of the benefits, too, I mean, I think that the City Health Dashboard in and of itself is a great community-facing tool for, um, you know, uh, city leaders to draw upon. I also think for the number crunchers among us, having the data, um, being able to download it and kind of do your own mapping, your own analysis um, is is a great resource across these indicators, but particularly for the COVID index. So we've kind of taken it and run with it. Um, we've moved kind of, we're not using the dashboard as much as we are the data. And so I think both of those are on offer here. Right. One is the community-facing tool and platform, but the other is the data and thinking behind it. And so um, we're a data-driven organization, and so have our own community data tools, but um, having the index to, to work with in our own way has been um, a great resource. I so appreciate that perspective, Emily. I, I'll say um, I know someone asked about downloadable data. We do provide the data for download. Um, I'll have my contact info at the end if you want the COVID data specifically. And um, to the point about it being documented and thought through, we have a, an extensive technical document. It's, it's like 80 pages. 
And we actually, when we were working in the office, we had a jar and we put a dollar in the jar every time somebody said they actually read something from the tech doc because that's where all the good information is hidden. And um, it is also very technical. We love to find uh, number crunchers alike in spirit. So Emily, I'm just so grateful. And and I will say one one more thing here is that our collaboration with you, Emily, has sort of been one of the uh, uh, ongoing partnerships that has inspired us through this this in, insanely challenging, very overwhelming time because we are seeing the work that we do and the thought that we put into translating directly into the type of action we're hoping to see it translated into. And it's sort of, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a candle. It's like a light at the end of the tunnel for us in some ways. And so, you know, I say that not just to tell Emily that she and Prosper Waco is fantastic because that's true, but also to highlight that like we really want to work with you, uh, whoever you are, whatever you're doing uh, on these data. And it's it's not only that it's important for our um, our uh, feasibility as a program, but also it's what is what inspires us. And so my email address, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have it out here at the end of the slide. And if you at all, if any of you want to collaborate or have questions about these data or, or have any issues with the data access, don't hesitate to reach out to me. And Emily, I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, folks, uh, Emily, I believe you have to hop off just right before our time. Is that correct? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, one, so one more you, thing. Go ahead. I just yeah, want to say one more. Oh, let me say one more thing, and then um, you can finish out. I will say this. Um, another, I would say, good thing about having an index like this, even though indices kind of are, are challenging in and of themselves to really understand a problem, I think in this moment where we need quick understanding, it is a great thing. And then secondly, it it creates a, a conversation, a language that, um, you know, helps partners, city leaders, schools, a variety of different kinds of institutions that are all trying to do the same thing um, can can look at the map and figure out, okay, where do we concentrate our particular efforts, um, whether that be health efforts or um, targeting uh, testing issues. I think um, it creates a common language that um, if you just focus on health data or um, demographic data, you really kind of miss a, a picture. And so I think it is a common language tool. Go ahead, Ben. Thanks so much, Emily. Uh, another excellent point. And I'm just going to divert for a second and say, uh, David, thank you so much for the Williamson Nature recommendation in the comments. Um, the, uh, I think I'm going to describe the process by which we're going to update the index in a moment. but. Uh, this article is definitely on the top of our list, and I definitely think it will be helpful. So I'm going to recap some of our findings, and then I'm going to leave some time for questions here. So um, the, here are some of the cities in the news and uh, uh, their city and neighborhood range, right? Miami, uh, city uh, score is 10, the highest possible risk score, and the neighborhood range is 1 to 10. Jacksonville. Uh, the local risk index score is 10 and neighborhood range is 1 to 10. Dallas score is 6, neighborhood range is 1 to 10. Phoenix score is, sorry, Dallas score is 8, 
ranges one to ten, and Phoenix score six, and neighborhood range one to ten. And um, the the city level score is important and provides important information. And I want to highlight the range here. Um, I might have this on the next slide, but um, the yeah. 40% of our cities, 193, this is the bottom bullet here, have a neighborhood range of 1 to 10. And and I'm highlighting this because uh, some cities have low overall risk scores and then have a census tract or a cluster of census tracts in which risk is higher. And we want to be really careful to, well, and this is the point about ethics, to not um, be saying these are the bad neighborhoods or something's wrong with these neighborhoods or these neighborhoods should be singled out because they're high risk in a, in a bad way. What we want to say is that uh, uh, cities that have uh, any sort of risk score but may have a, a cluster of higher risk neighborhoods should be providing resources and thinking about uh, who lives in those neighborhoods and what those people need in order to to uh, 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 prevent or reduce COVID transmission and severe outcomes. Because uh, the risk, I think, here is seeing a, a low city-level risk score and thinking, oh, we're, our risk is low, we are safe, and then doing a thing that um, uh, uh, folks have been doing for for decades, which is not really thinking about health equity and not being careful about supporting uh, everyone who needs support, especially in the face of this new public health challenge. And so, so uh, this is why I think it's so important to uh, take a look not only at the city score, but also the neighborhood range and identify those places in which neighborhoods uh, may be at higher risk. There are also... Uh, substantial variation across groups of states. Excuse me. <clears throat> what you see here is the a box plot of the average <clears throat> COVID index value score by cities uh, at the city level within census divisions. <clears throat> and the diamonds are the averages. The lines that you see within each box are the median values. And the uh, uh, the 50, the 25 to 75% values are covered by the rectangles. Uh, and what I want to highlight is that the Medical Atlantic Division, which is New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, the average here is, around, is I believe, 8.2. And then down at the mountain region where we have Arizona, Colorado, uh, Idaho, New Mexico, a handful of other states, the average here is somewhere around the three, three and a half range. And so we are seeing substantial uh, variation by uh, census division and to a lesser extent census region. And so there are some geographic patterns to the, uh, to the COVID local risk index, which I think are important to think about. And we're sort of still thinking through uh, uh, how to use these or what these differences mean. So that brings us to the present moment. What do we do now? Uh, all of our, the overwhelming majority of our data are available for download at cityhealthdashboard.com. Uh, if you are interested in the uh, COVID data, which we do not provide in the publicly available data set right now, you can email me and I will uh, send you or someone from our team will send you those data files. Um, we 
and the reason we don't provide those publicly is that we are cognizant that the uh, understanding around COVID is changing rapidly. And we sort of wanted to balance the importance of providing these data uh, uh, with urgency. We want to balance that urgency with making sure that these data are as, as accurate as possible, that the COVID local risk index accurately captures what's going on uh, with respect to COVID risk. So at the end of August or the beginning of September, we're going to do a reevaluation of the COVID local risk index. And we're going to be looking at um, the recently published literature, including the Williams and Nature article. We're going to be looking at variables that we want, we thought about including, but we could not include in the first go around, potentially uh, transportation, public transit access, uh, and the degree to which individuals are uh, sheltering in place uh, using mobile, da mobile phone data. <clears throat> and we may uh, change the weighting or the variables or other things about the index. And if we do, we want to be able to contact everyone who has the data and say, here are the changes we made, here's why we made them, and here are the new data. So this is partially a, a reminder that this is work in progress as we continue to learn more about COVID and partially a um, Please uh, allow. Please use our data and know that we're going to update it. And when we do, we're going to reach out to you. Now, gets on to my uh, other point here, which is we have a huge appetite to work with anyone who wants to work with these data or use the dashboard. So please don't hesitate to reach out. And then, in closing, before I leave, about 15 minutes for questions. I want to say uh, we've all gotten used to some very uh, uh, unusual, uh, I think unusual is not strong enough, some pretty upsetting circumstances. And for those of you who have made it to this webinar with me, like we're all struggling in our own ways. Uh, uh, my cats are not nearly de as demanding as, for instance, children might be, and I still find a way to struggle through it. So, so I hope that you all are well or are getting well, and I certainly appreciate you spending this time uh, uh, learning about the dashboard. And now I'm going to open this up to questions. So please don't hesitate to drop them in the chat box if you've got them. Thank you so much, Ben and Emily. At this time, we will open it up for audience questions. Um, we thank you for the questions that you've submitted so far, but just as a reminder to submit your question through the web conference system, simply type into the chat box located at the lower left of your screen, and then be sure to hit that send button so that we're sure to receive the question. So just give it a moment or two to see if anything comes in. And while we're waiting, Ben, if you want to start out with a question that maybe um, you're often asked that you think would be worth um, mentioning and, or um, expanding on, feel free to go ahead. Yeah, I think that I can get a little bit further into the data sets here, which I um, wasn't able to answer fully previously. Uh, the primary data source for the metrics on the website uh, is the is American Community Survey, U.S. Census data. 
followed closely by the CDC's 500 cities uh, data set, which provides small area estimation, census tract level data based on the behavior risk factor surveillance system. We, uh, we, a number of our metrics are derived from a data use agreement with the National Vital Statistics System. So we, in, in um, more typical times, have gone to the restricted data center in Maryland, sat in a special room, and worked with mortality files uh, to produce some of the health outcome data you see on the dashboard. Uh, and after that, many of our data sets uh, come from, I'm sure it's getting a big one, but uh, uh, many of our uh, metrics come from uh, data use agreements with private contractors. For instance, our park access data comes from ParkServe, our walk score data comes from walk score. Our violent crime data come from analyzing the uh, uniform crime reporting database. And, you know, these data systems are going to be differentially affected by COVID, and so we're sort of keeping an eye on how these public health surveillance systems uh, uh, are, are impacted, and it's really an open question. Well, thank you. We do have a comment from Julie, and she just says that she appreciates the information and learning about this resource, um, and thanks you for sharing. Um, we've also had a question come in from Ronald. Is there any chance the COVID geospatial data might be given at the census block level at a later date? Uh, thank you so much, Julie. I, you know, I'm sitting here talking to my computer, which doesn't have a lot of feelings. So um, it's nice to feel this connected for someone. <laughs> um, the, Ronald, I appreciate the second question here. Um, the the COVID geospatial data, a uh, uh, couple ways to answer that. Um, many of the components of the social vulnerability index are available down to the census block level. I believe I'd have to double check before I can give you a 100% confident answer, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. However, the clinical factors that we include are available at the um, the, the census tract level only. And so we can't drill down to the block level. And for those of you who uh, don't know what this means, the block, census blocks are uh, nested within census tracts. I believe it's about four blocks in each tract, but I'm not totally sure that's right. I'm going to have to double check that. But anyways, there's a, they are a geographic subcomponent of the tract. And so that gives you an even more granular look, uh, geographic granular look at these data. Um, so the the short answer to that is not for the clinical outcomes, but yes, for some of the demographic factors. Uh, we won't be processing and releasing those, but they are available by uh, the, the data.census.gov, the new U.S. Census Data Access website. I also want to mention um, we, in addition to the data downloadable files, we have an API. If you are a savvy computer person, you can uh, grab the data through our API, which you can find out more about on the website, cityhealth-word.com. Wonderful. Thank you. Next question. How often will the database be updated and distributed to us when we sign up to receive it? Yeah, um, but Bettina, I think that's Bettina. I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong. Bettina Lee. Um, you know, we know that we're going to update it 
in, in late August, early September. And I think that we're going to, we're probably going to do a quarterly update after that or something in that range. And it really depends on how quickly our understanding of the COVID data, COVID transmission uh, evolves. Um, I also think that we may update it less frequently uh, if our understand if the evolution of the data slows down or if a vaccine becomes widely available and there's no longer questions around our ability to prepare for and respond to the outbreak. Um, we will uh, let everyone know when we change the data, and that's why that's the primary reason why we ask people to email us to get the COVID data specifically, is so that when we make these updates, we can let you know that um, there's fresh new data off the um, data assembly line. And it looks like we've got one more question in the queue so far. Um, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. or plans on including additional financial metrics on the City Health Dashboard? Well, this is a great question, and boy, uh, let's do a whole another hour and a half. Um, we have started a partnership with the New York State Federal Reserve Bank to think through these financial metrics, and they have uh, recently released something called the Credit Insecurity Index, which measures um, the a, a city's uh, uh, the, the ability of the residents of a city to access credit at choice. And so they sort of see this as an intermediate point between um, what goes on in people's financial situations in a normal time and financial distress. If something happens to a person that stresses their financial situation, credit is one way they might be able to cope with it. And um, there's a lot to think about with this metric, and we're sort of working on whether we think it's a good financial uh, uh, measure, both in terms of measuring preparedness and um, potential response to the, the, um, to the, the outbreak. In addition, we're looking at posting a personal bankruptcy rate. We believe that personal bankruptcies will increase over the course of COVID and for years to come, potentially years to come after COVID, if there's a recession, which is looking increasingly likely. And uh, this is a sort of an end point of financial distress while the access to credit is a, is a midpoint. Um, there are drawbacks to any metric and, and uh, Personal bankruptcy is not a, a, an exception to that. Uh, people don't access bankruptcy or file bankruptcy equally across uh, racial, ethnic, or sociodemographic lines, and there are differences in bankruptcy practices across states. However, um, I am of the opinion, and I'm not an expert here, but I'm of the opinion that if we're having a big, a big recession, we're going to see increases in bankruptcy, and that may suggest to individual to city leaders that, hey, maybe we should raise the minimum wage or provide a whole lot of housing or, or some of those other um, ground-level financial uh, uh, interventions. Third and finally, we're going to work with the Fed to try and just get more, uh, more nuanced financial metrics, and we're going to be working with them ideally over the next year or so to, to create that. And so, so you know, you're, you're right on it. Uh, you're right on it. We're, we're thinking about how we can add more complex and interesting financial metrics to the dashboard because we are going to need them in the coming years. 
Yeah, uh, I would love to stay in touch with you too. Sorry, I don't mean to. Uh, I'm not the monitor. Sorry. No, <laughs> no. That um, actually, it looks like that was our very last question. Um, do you have any final comments before we wrap up today, Ben? Um. So. Uh, so. There is one question, one more question here from Bettina that says, are we going to include the H1N1 flu pandemic? Um, I don't know. Uh, my meaning towards we probably will not because we need to concentrate our, answer, our efforts on um, COVID. And this is something that I'm going to bring back to my team because I don't think we've thought about it yet. Um, I guess in closing, I'll say, uh, I'll reiterate that we want to work with folks, especially folks who are in smaller cities that may not have substantial data capacity because the entire purpose of our program is to provide access to data where there was not access to data before. So the, my inbox is uh, always open to visitors. Please email me. Let us know. We'll find a way to work with you if you desire to work with us. And I very much appreciate uh, uh, you all attending the webinar. Thank you so much. And with that, we must conclude today's webinar. A special thank you to our presenters and to everyone who joined us today. Please take a moment now to complete a brief evaluation of today's program by clicking the evaluation link to the left of the screen. Your comments and suggestions are important to us as we plan future events. The survey must be completed in order to receive a certificate for this program. You can also access the survey from your ICMA dashboard by clicking on the program title once you are logged in. Thank you for your participation in today's webinar. We hope you will join us again soon. Today's program is copyright 2020 by the International City County Management Association with all rights reserved. This concludes today's program. Thanks for joining. You may now disconnect. <laughs>